Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is Toya Kristen Finley. Toya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, so first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. So in general, I am a writer and an editor. Uh, when I say I've been writing forever, I literally was uh, uh, dictating stories to my mother and grandmother when I was four years old. Um, I was first published at the age of 17. I then went on to get several degrees in creative writing, which culminated with a PhD in literature and creative writing. Um, so I've been writing for a very long time. I've written a lot of different genres. I've had a lot of short stories published, um, been published in anthologies. I've written a couple of books, uh, one co-authored and one um, edited and contributed to on uh, narrative and uh, writing in games. Um, and as far as editing goes, I started uh, as an intern when I was an undergrad. Um, I went on to work at several literary journals. I started one um, when I was getting my PhD. And over the past several years, I have been editing uh, online courses. I've been editing video games. And I've also been doing diversity consulting, which I consider a type of developmental editing. Um, so, And I say in general because I've um, also written academic pieces. I have, you know, written um, a graphic novel that had manga sensibilities for a client. Um, I've written for games. You know, I've written my own stuff. So I, I, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Most of our guests are, uh, you know, sort of multitaskers, uh, in a sense. I think most modern writers have to be. Um, but I first met you and got to know you through the the video games uh, narrative scene. And at the, at the time, I must admit, I didn't realise that you did all this other stuff as well um <laughs> or that you indeed had a phd or at least at the time when i met you were probably working towards one um you started a literary journal <laughs> I yeah i didn't know that either <laughs> so i mean let's let's start at the beginning you say you started off dictating stories to your relatives um so did you just always want to be a storyteller did you know that that was what you were going to do uh well uh, yes and no because, and, and I, I guess this also gets into my writing process, which we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but I was my mother's only child. Um, I have several half siblings on my father's side. Um, but as an only child, I spent a lot of time um, visualizing stories in my head. And I started out, you know, anthropomizing my own pets <laughs> and putting them into stories. <laughs> And that's kind of how the whole dictating stories to my mother and grandmother started. Um, and I, I remember, like, I, I would make up words. And my grandmother, who was uh, a teacher and very much, you know, wanting me to speak proper English, <laughs> would try to figure out what word I was trying to say. And she would, you know, change the word and I would demand that she actually use the made up word that I used. And so then she would try to figure out how to spell it. Um, but it was kind of, you know, in that vein where I already had stories going on in my head that I realized that I wanted to be a writer. I actually wanted to be a writer and a veterinarian. And I remember telling my father, I think I was about five or six, hey, I want to be a writer and a veterinarian. And he told me, oh, you can only be one of those, which of course we know is not true. And I later <laughs> found out that's definitely not true. Um, but I was like, fine, I'll be a veterinarian by day and a writer at night. Um, <laughs> but later on, that just kind of changed me. And although I still love animals very much, it just changed me wanting to be a writer. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, there are vets who write, obviously, and do, as you Absolutely. say, are a vet by day and, and writer by night. Um, so how did you start taking, and I can relate, by the way, because I was a, an only child up until I was 10 years old when my younger sister was born. And I was also, you know, relentlessly making up stories, what have you, in that time to entertain myself as much as anything. Um, so how did you start sort of taking steps towards actually getting published and, you know, taking it seriously? Uh, so 
when I was the, the summer I was 11, it started 11 and, and turned 12. I had had a story that was in my head for like the past three years. And I decided to finally write it down. And when I say that I have stories in my head for years, like up until that time, I maybe had like two other stories. I would um, tell myself these particular stories, um, orally tell them to my mother, um, and then I would move on to something else. Um, by the time I was 11, I realized, hey, I should actually write this down. And so I had, I, I filled it up with, I think, four notebooks. You know, it was the first novel that I ever wrote. Um, and I realized how easy it was to do because the story had been in my head for three years. So like I had, you know, scenes in my head. I had already, like, I literally hear characters talking. I had, you know, gone over the dialogue in these scenes over and over again until I liked it. So I had seen everything and I just wrote it all down. Um, and at that point, like I would imagine, um, I don't know if you did this, but you know, you would get books and you would look at the spines and like the, the colophons on the spines and, you know, how nice, <laughs> you know, certain publisher logos were and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would start imagining, oh, I want to be published by them based upon how much I liked, you know, the way their books looked and how the pages felt and all that stuff. So I started imagining getting published, um, when I was around that age. And so then I had, um, an English teacher when I went back to school, um, you know, the, the fall after I had written that novel and I gave her the four notebooks to read and she was extremely encouraging, you know, of my writing. And so when you have somebody like, I, I love my parents dearly, but you know, they're not writers. Um, my mother tells me things are interesting. I say, don't call it interesting. She says, but I really mean it's interesting, you know, but to have somebody who's understands the art of writing be very encouraging because for me, it was also, you know, how writers don't like talk about talking about writing to non-writers. Um, well, it was, it was even worse for me. I feel like, um, even though I think I was imagining that people thought I was weird for, you know, writing at that young age, um, when I later found out that I had other friends <laughs> who were also writing at that young age. Um, but I felt kind of strange being a writer um, and not knowing anybody else who was writing novels. Like I had friends who wrote poetry. I had friends who were dabbling in short stories, but not a novelist. So I felt strange. But to have, you know, an adult, you know, really encourage me helped. And it was at that point where I got my hands on a writer's market. And I don't even remember how I learned that, you know, I could look up different markets and learn how to submit work. Um, now, people have different thoughts about writer's market and that sort of thing. Um, and there are, you know, more valuable resources online now. But I learned how to submit basically from reading out of writer's markets. And I would buy a new one every year because, you know, they updated every year with, you know, new markets in them. Um, and, you know, there were defunct markets that they would take out of the book. Um, and so I started submitting, was I 13 or 14 when I started submitting work? I was, I was 13 or 14. And so then, you know, I, I did get that first acceptance um, when I was 17. And I remember that I was at a special camp for kids who were interested in the humanities <laughs> when I found out that, you know, I had been accepted for this anthology. So that was really cool. That's fantastic. Um, what uh, genre were you working in at the time? So uh, I've, I've, I've kind of always blended genres. Um, so, you know, up until that age, I was doing everything from fantasy to science fiction. The story itself that was published um, was uh, light science fiction. And I say everything from fantasy to science fiction. I mean like magical realism, fabulism, hard science fiction, light science fiction, all of those blurring between the lines that has um, become more popular in the last few years, but may have been very difficult to publish, you know, when we were growing up. 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, I can relate to that. It's uh, I've spent my entire career hopping between genres, and these days everybody does that. But twenty years ago, nobody was doing that. <laughs> exactly, and it's like you know, it's it, it, and it's always been about marketing. Genre has always been about marketing, but it, it feels like twenty years ago, people were more purists about no, this isn't science fiction, this isn't fantasy. We don't want no literary in our <laughs> speculative fiction. Um, you know, you can't write literary stuff and and science fiction. You know, you have to stick with realism or mystery. It, it felt like people were forcing you to be in a box more than they are now. Yeah, That's kind of fallen away. And I think part of that is people are working in more media. So it's not as important anymore. And a lot of, you know, the storytelling we, that we see now, and I don't care what medium it is, we'll see that blending. Yeah. And I think you're right that uh, some of that is because of the uh, the more common occurrence of transmedia, which obviously is, you, is something that you and I know a fair bit about working in games and then also in, you know, literary areas and stuff. Um It's funny, actually, you mentioned about how it was relatively easy to write that first attempted a novel because you already had it all in your head. Uh, one of the early guests on this show was Brian Hill, and that's how he works to this day, is he does everything like in his mind first and literally imagines an entire movie in his head and then just writes down what's in his head. <laughs> you see, it's amazing. <laughs> Makes because, it sound so easy. <laughs> well, but here's, here's the thing, though. When I was growing up, and even until about maybe four years ago, I am the only person I know who did that. And um, one of the reasons why I have a, a problem with quote unquote writing rules is that I grew up thinking that I was writing incorrectly. Mm. I think it would serve writers better and aspiring writers better if we use terms like writing suggestions because writing rules worked for someone else, and we're trying to force that onto how somebody else's brain and imagination works. And what I learned is I'm always writing. It just means that I might not be writing it down on a piece of paper or typing it into a word processor, but I am always writing. And I have a very like, it's easy for me to go into my head and start um, thinking about a particular story um, and kind of visualizing everything like a movie. But I also have particular ways that enhances it. Um, and I actually talked about this on another podcast, I think like three years ago now. And one of the co-hosts was like, you know what? I do the same thing and I've never ever heard anybody talk about this before. <laughs> so I think it's something that needs to come out more and more. But um, what I do, and I started this, you know, as an only child when, you know, very, very young, my father would have the radio on in the house all day. And so the music that was on the radio became like a soundtrack for my stories. And I would actually, you know, put certain songs to certain scenes. And as I got older, I would start uh, taping off of the radio. So I would have the songs that I needed and I would, you know, put on a Walkman. Oh boy, am I old. Um, <laughs> I would put on a Walkman and listen to a certain song and that would help me kind of rehearse a scene. And I do that to this day. You know, I, you know, stream music. I stream certain songs to go with certain stories. And I have found that years later, I'll hear a song and it brings up the memory, you know, of a story that I was working on because it's kind of, you ah, know, yeah. baked into my unconsciousness that way. Um, and the other thing that I learned how to do, and, and it's, it's kind of funny because once I realized that it, visualizing was a form of writing, you know, I took it more seriously and tried to understand um, how I could best use it to my benefit. Um, because I used to call it daydreaming because I didn't know what else to say. And my mother, who is a retired school psychologist, said, no, that's not daydreaming. Daydreaming is like flights of fancy. So for anybody who's listening, who kind of does the same thing as I do as or as Brian Hill does, and you've never heard anybody else talking about this before, um, 
it is very real. It is a very real effective tool for writing. Um, and it is more like visualizing or, you know, directing something. And what I started doing is because what I found is once I had written down what I had thought about, like if it was a scene or, you know, a, a kind of an arc of a story, once I wrote it down, I didn't have to remember it anymore, which I found really, really interesting. And, you know, I had, I had rehearsed it so much that I actually memorized it like an actor. Um, and so what I started doing is I, I create a document when I start a new story called Scenes to Come. I, I title it the name of the story, Scenes to Come. And so I, once I have a story, I mean, a scene or whatever, the way I like it, um, I will go to that document and I'll kind of give a description of what the scene is. Um, I don't need to do like full sentences or anything like that. And this works for any medium. Um, and then I'll put the dialogue uh, and I might note like the character's emotions, kind of like almost shorthand um, dialogue in a comic script. Um, and I'll try to put those scenes in order. So like the first scene that I'm really comfortable with might be in the middle of the story somewhere. And that might be the first scene in the document. But as I start getting the beginning scenes, I'll go back to the document and I will type them ahead of that middle scene. So that's been very helpful too. So when I'm ready to, you know, start composing something, I can go to my scenes to come document and almost literally copy and paste from that. Oh, wow. So, so it's not really an outline, but more a kind of sketch of things you want to do that grows as you cultivate it. Right. It's so it, it can be, it can be a sketch. Sometimes it's a lot more detailed than that. Mm -hmm. So if it is, if it is like a comic scene, you know, I'm not writing lengthy prose paragraphs. So I might have the entire panel written there <laughs> in the document. Or say if it's because I'm I'm actually working on a demo for a visual novel that will be my own thing, you know, a lot of it is the dialogue. So I don't have to write an entire fleshed out thing, but I might have the dialogue just the way I like it. So when I get to the script for the the demo, all I do is copy and paste the dialogue right into it. Um, and I do outline to a certain extent. So I might have an idea. I've, I found this very interesting. I don't have uh, beginnings very often, like right away. I usually have to kind of figure out, like I have a very hazy idea of what the beginning is based on what the rest of the story is. Um, so I can might have an outline to kind of flesh out themes and ideas. Um, and those can be pretty detailed, but they're not necessarily in the way that we usually think of an outline. Like here's chapter one and here's everything that happens in chapter one. It's more like here's character arcs, here's plot arcs, here's what I know needs to be in there. Um, here are questions for myself that I know, I, I, I know that this happens, but it doesn't make sense yet. And I need to figure out how to make it make sense. Um, so I've had one story in my head since I was 15 and, you know, it's, you can, it's pretty complex <laughs> if it's been in there that long. Yeah. <laughs> and I had questions, like I knew certain things happened, but it didn't make sense. And it's only been in like the past 10 years or the past two years that I've finally gotten answers to those questions. Wow. That's that's a long time for a story to gestate. It's yeah. a very long time. <laughs> so when you, I mean, we're, we're jumping all over the place here, but this is great. So when you actually come to start writing something, like so let's say it's a, a short story, or actually, no, let's say it's like a light novel, something a bit longer. Um, are you, do you start at the start and just write straight through? Or given the nature of your your notes and all these questions and sort of scene uh, fragments and ideas and snippets of dialogue. Are you jumping around and cutting and pasting or what? So this is something that I had to learn how to do because I don't know where I picked this up, but I always believe that you had to start at the beginning and you needed to, you know, write linearly, you know, in chronological order and all of that. Mm -hmm. And I found it very difficult sometimes to just begin writing because I didn't have the beginning. 
And I was keeping myself from writing the parts that I had. So it, it wasn't like I had writer's block or anything like that, but I would try to start a story and it would be very difficult, you know, to get going. And I'm also one of those types where I want to write the sentence perfectly before I move on to the next sentence. And I kind of had to get myself out of that as well. Um, so what I learned is, hey, if I've got the beginning of the story, that's fine. If I don't, and I think this trick comes from journalism, although I didn't learn learn it from journalism, is that I will leave brackets in the document. So at the beginning, if I don't have it, I'll have some brackets with ellipses in the center and then move to the next thing. And I'll put a note, you know, how I kind of think the beginning will go. Um, and I'll, you know, put bracketed information, you know, as the story progresses in chronological order, what should go here, what should go here, what should go here. When I finally get, you know, to the parts where I know what I want to say, um, I'll type it in, but maybe I don't have the right phrasing yet or the right word. I will put a bracket there, you know, like come back and reword this better. Or, you know, um, I'll use a word, but maybe it's too cliche or I want a synonym. So I'll leave notes for myself like that. And I found that has been extremely freeing. I don't have to start at the beginning. I can start at the middle if I want. Um, usually it has to do with the part that I have the best sense of that I've seen, you know, the most freely, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's easier to start typing that because what I found was I was, I was, and I don't, and, and again, I'm not saying I had writer's block, but I was blocking myself, trying to force myself to, you know, type something up that I didn't have yet. And I've only really learned this in like the past four years. I don't have to start at the beginning, um, which is really nice. In fact, there's a, there's a platform called Causality um, that is made for people who don't write in order. And it helps them kind of, you know, plan out a story in whatever order that they want to. So um, I played around with that a little bit and I actually wrote a short story out of order, I think, for the first time about a couple of years ago. And that was very helpful. That's one of the reasons that I use and love Scrivener is that it makes writing uh, out of order, you know, non-linearly uh, very easy because that's, yeah, I do that all the time. Oh, so you're non-linear too. Oh, yeah. And I use that exact method of uh, if I'm not sure how something is going to go or if i just want to gloss over it so i can get to something that i am more confident about yeah i'll do the same i'll just put brackets in going look this is the sort of thing i need to happen here come back and do it later so that i can move on it's uh, absolutely invaluable to my process now i've got a question for you because I, I i find this very strange for you know i've told you my whole writing process that is not necessarily um what happens when i'm writing for a client Oh, interesting. Okay. Oftentimes, well, sometimes like, you know, I'll, I'll have a sense or, um, kind of a hazy picture. If you, if you remember not long ago on Twitter, artists were asking each other, um, how do you see this apple in your head? Do you remember that? No, I think I missed that one. All right. So <laughs> there, there were several images of an apple and there was a very clear picture of an apple. I think there were four. There were four or five. There was a very clear picture of an apple. There was an apple that was a little less clear. And as you went on down the line, the apple became fuzzy till you could almost not see the apple at all. And so artists were asking each other, so when you, when you see something in your head, how do you see it? And well, just kind of off topic for just a second, what I found fascinating that there were a lot of artists who could barely see something in their head or, you know, they had a very hazy picture of it. And it was like often they drew to get a sense of what they were seeing because they couldn't see it in their heads. Ah. But often when I see something in my head, it's that very clear apple or maybe it's just a little bit fuzzier than the clear apple. Um, but when I'm writing for a client, Sometimes I don't need to go through that whole writing process or, you know, I might see something, but it's kind of hazy. Like maybe, you know, if the clear apple is number one, you know, maybe I see the apple at three or four, um, but I don't really need to. I don't need to go through the whole process that I usually have. It's a lot easier for some reason for me to write for a client. And a lot of times I think that's because 
I talk out with the client what they want ahead of time. Um, and we pretty much get an idea. We, we're in agreement of what I'm going to write. And I think also like the time pressure and knowing money is going to be at the end of it kind of helps as well. Um, but I don't, I don't go through that whole, that whole same creative process. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm wondering why I, not that I want to do that same process for how I write my own stuff, because I find the way I write my own stuff incredibly enjoyable. I just find it interesting that my brain can kind of work in different ways based upon if I'm writing for someone else or for myself. I wonder if that is because you, you effectively are, you're doing the same amount of work. It's just that when you're doing it for a client, you're doing it, as you say, with somebody else. So it doesn't feel like the same kind of work, but it it essentially is. You're You're making those notes on what you want to be included and what you want to see in the work. It's just that you here means both you and the client rather than you doing it solo. Right. And you, you, you're also, you're also getting feedback. That's true. Yeah. So you're, you're always knowing, okay, this is what they want. I need to tweak this a little bit. And it's, it's not this very long process where, I mean, people will write stuff you know, their own IP in different ways. Like maybe they'll write half of it and then give it to somebody to read, or they wait until they're done with the whole thing. Um, but it, it, it's, it's just really fascinating to me. And at one point I was like, oh, I wish I could write for myself the way I write for clients. I'm like, no, actually I, I don't wish that at all. <laughs> um, but at this, at the same time, like I, I, I don't write blogs, blog, blog posts or anything like that, even though I have lots of ideas for blog posts and, you know, I have lots of ideas for like digital content, but I find that I don't want to do it. I don't want to put the energy into it because I don't know if anybody's going to see it or if, you know, there's, there's no monetary <laughs> There's not going to be any monetary reward at the end. So it's kind of like exercising energy that, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. No, I, I can absolutely relate to that. I I mean, I do do lots of things for myself, but if if I can't get them published professionally, I will just put them out online. I mean, that's the beauty of living in the age that we do. Right. But I, I always, when I'm working on something, I always do so with the intention that it will go out there into the world. I don't write for the trunk, as they say. Uh, and you can call that ego, you know, or whatever, but that's just how I, I don't, as you say, I don't really want to put the effort into something that only I'm going to see, because that, to me, as an artist, feels like a waste. Well, and I think, you know, blog posts are kind of a different animal because they have to find an audience. You have to have a certain social reach, right? But if if, if it's a short story, how many markets are there now? You don't even have to publish it yourself anymore because there are so, so many markets now. And so many of them now take uh, simultaneous submissions. I remember when I was starting out, and I'm sure you remember this, nobody would let you submit simultaneously. No, no. So you could try to, you could try to publish something for 10 years because you would have to wait, you know, three, four months, sometimes um a, a really ridiculous amount of time to get a story back from an editor before you could send it out again. Um, but you know, even if you, if you aren't able to find a publisher, you know, you can put like a short story collection together and, you know, publish it yourself, or you have Indiegogo and Kickstarter and all of these different things that, you know, would have made our lives a lot easier when we were younger writers. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's funny, the whole fuzziness question, because I, I, I hadn't really thought about that before, but as you were talking about it, I sort of thought, well, what, you know, how am I? And I think I'm the opposite. I think that and I do outline, you know, famously, I'm an inveterate outliner and I outline thoroughly when I'm writing sort of, you know, plot driven fiction like my thrillers and things. Um, but it still is only an outline and it is still kind of fuzzy in my head, you know, in terms mm. of picturing it in my head. And I find that it is in the writing of a scene and of a character that it, you know, that it's defined and then it becomes more clear. Um, much like those artists were saying. So I, fi I find that really interesting. You know, there's a, that, that is interesting. And it reminds me of, it's something similar, but it's auditory. 
in that I was just talking to a friend about this last month, and um, actually a mutual friend of ours was telling me this happens with him. He was telling me this last year. They hear, they don't see anything, but they hear it. So they'll hear characters speaking, but then it's like they have to find the visuals to go around them, Ah, which I find very fascinating because I'm audio and visual. Um, So, you know, before I understood that people's brains work in different ways, I thought everybody thought the way I did. Of course. (laughs) You know, when I, when I was 11 years old, I discovered that there were, there were kids in my class who only dreamed in black and white. And that was crazy to me. You know, it's like that, that's a thing. People only dream in black and white. And of course the kids who were, who only dreamed in black and white were like, there are people who dream in color. Get out of here. Um, So brains are, are fascinating. So I guess, Guess what I would want to encourage people, whether, you know, they've been writing for a long time and maybe this is the first time they've heard anything like this or, you know, they're just starting out. Um, you know, it, it's taken me over the length of my life, basically, because like I said, I've, I really started out when I was three or four years old, is you're always learning more about your own process. Um but also I think it's important to kind of figure out how your brain works too and how your imagination works and then um, find tools that help facilitate the way your brain works. Like I said, I open up a document that I start and, and um, put scenes that I've had in my head in there um, or that I use music to, you know, you know, kind of the soundtrack behind the movie that's going on in my head. Oh, the other thing that I do, um, like if I really, really want to get in a good groove and I'm a night owl, um, I pace back and forth in the dark. Now, when I was a child, I had a swing set and I would swing back and forth as I was day, as I was visualizing, I'm going back and calling it daydreaming, but as I was visualizing, but now I pace back and forth as I'm visualizing. And, um, the co-host uh, on the podcast who realized that he did the same thing, he didn't do the music, but he also realizes that he paces. So there's something about that movement, I guess, that helps um, you know me to focus and to get rid of all distraction, um, which I also find kind of interesting. But yeah, I, w- I would just encourage people, you know, what helps you? How does your brain work? Are you audio? Are you visual? Are you audiovisual? Are you neither? Um, do you just kind of get concepts, but they don't really have a shape? Um, cause I know that also happens for some people. Uh, so brains are fascinating things. Figure out how yours works and, and don't feel badly if you don't know immediately, it might be a lifelong process. Oh, it can absolutely take time. Yeah. I mean, that, that self-awareness is absolutely vital. It's something that I, uh, talk about a fair amount is, you know, sort of knowing, as you say, knowing yourself and knowing what works best for you and how, how best you can work to sort of, to suit the way in which you produce your best work. And I mean, that's how, uh, I came to realize that I was a nonlinear writer was as soon mm-hmm. as I tried it, as soon as I had the tools that allowed me to write you know a novel in a non easily in a non-linear fashion of course you could always do it but you know that made it much much easier uh rather than just starting at the beginning of a word document and eighty thousand words later reaching the end which i always found like pulling teeth you know just a tortuous process as soon as i found software that would enable me to write in a non-linear fashion with ease it was like the floodgates opening it was absolutely a, a revelation to me and as you say, one of the things that writers don't talk about much is that kind of those nuts and bolts of how our brains work and how our creative minds work when we are typing away. It's one of the reasons that I do this show. And one of the reasons I love talking to other writers on this show is to try and understand how other people work and make sure people out there realize that we are all different, but at the same time, there are often more commonalities than you might otherwise believe between writers. Yeah, I think that's actual a societal problem as far as um, not understanding how our brains work. I feel like if we look more at like um, 
you know, the research into like learning disabilities, right? There's, there's more information there. And I think people, you know, who have ADHD or they, they learn how their brains work, right? Or people who are neuroatypical, um, they're more self-aware and have, you know, they're really understanding how their brains work. Um, and really the reason why I knew that was a thing and why that was important, because I said before, my mother is a retired school psychologist. And so a lot of what I understand about the different types of brains is because I would hear her talking about it. Um, and you know, she would tell me about children that she was working with. And so I just think that's a, that's a problem, no matter what you do or what you're interested in is that we really don't focus enough on the fact that brains are different. Brains have different ways of working. I, I heard a really interesting tidbit about Einstein recently. Um, you know, one of the most brilliant people to ever be on this planet, um, is that the two largest parts of his brain were the math and logic centers. Well, of course. <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, you know, he was very mathematical and very logical. And there, there was, you know, biological evidence behind that. Um, so finding out how our brains work, it, it doesn't just help our creative processes, but I think it helps us as well, um, you know, in whatever personal growth we're looking to go through. Well, and, and this analytical approach is something that I would imagine uh, you studied quite a bit when, you know, you, you've referred to yourself before as a kind of professional student. You spent a long time in academia. Uh, you know, you got your PhD. Why did you decide to go down that route? Was it because of this sort of fascination with, you know, how our minds work? Uh, it's a lot simpler than that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really I just wanted to keep writing and have an excuse to keep writing. Um, and what I was able to do at both the MA and PhD levels was to write novels. And so one of kind of the fears that I had is, you know, once I stopped being an undergrad, I would have to get a real job and, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't have time to write anymore. And of course I did like, I liked reading. I liked literature a lot. I discovered that I really didn't like the, the politicalness of the Academy. Um, but I do. And I, I think this is why I like editing so much is I am analytical. Um, and one reason why I, I was talking to somebody about revisions and I said, revisions are the easiest part for me. The, the writing, the first draft is hard. And I think revisions are easy is because I approach it as an editor, you know, and I'm kind of analytical about it. Um, and editing, I find very relaxing and therapeutic <laughs> for some reason. Um, but yeah, I like, I like breaking down texts and I'm going to be very academic and calling stories texts in that way. I like breaking down texts. I like seeing how they're working. I like seeing how they're not working. I like trying to figure out the thought processes that the storytellers brought to a particular story. Um, now, I think that I spoil myself on stories a lot because I pretty much know sometimes right from the get-go what's going to happen and the quote-unquote big, amazing twist. Um, but that's, that's also how my brain works. I'm analytical. Um, but, you know, I, I, I mentioned twists, and I now have... Um, a different thought about twist as well. And um, I, I think we've gotten into the shocking twist so much that, and, and again, this, I don't care what medium you, lo you look at, we've got to have that shocking twist so that audiences are looking for it from the beginning. And, you know, you know they're expecting it, they're looking for it, and it's, it's not really so much of a twist anymore. Um, and I think we need to approach stories, and I actually gave a talk about this for a video game conference. We need to think of stories as being built upon epiphanies. You know, it's it's not just you have some story and then two-thirds of the way through, oh, here's a shocking twist. 
And then there's a little bit more story. And then here's another twist to kind of build off of the shocking twist. That's more of a twist than the shocking twist. (laughs) No. I can't imagine which book you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or or video game, because there have been a few recently. (laughs) You know, but stories are built upon epiphanies. Um, And can we just have stories that build upon giving readers more and more information you know there might be some mystification there which is good there might i like to call things breadcrumbs where you you're seeding these breadcrumbs that you kind of de- uh, develop a language between you and the audience it says hey are you paying attention do you know what this breadcrumb means can you find the next one that'll get you some more information and more than just dumping something on an audience to make them feel something all of a sudden it it should be an experience the whole way through. Well, and it should be an experience for the characters as well. I I know I know what you mean, and I actually I call them revelations. I like to think of them when I'm, especially when I'm outlining, as this is where we get the revelation. Um, and the way I like to write things is that the revelation then brings about the epiphany, which enables. uh, a greater wisdom and that greater wisdom is what a character then uses to sort of progress in the story and maybe ultimately succeed. Um, And those are because they are things that characters undergo. They are intrinsically more interesting to me than the shocking twist. I mean, I like a shocking twist as much as anyone. Mm -hmm. I really do. You know, I read a lot of mysteries and thrillers and I write mysteries and thrillers. Um, But those shocking twists are, I won't say nothing, but I think they are, they have less value if they don't also come within the context of a character undergoing some kind of revelation and realization. Absolutely. I see. I, here's another thing that I, I, I think lends credence to what you're saying. It might sound like I'm maybe contradicting you, but I, I see them as kind of the same thing. What I noticed about 10 years ago is that there was a lot of surface writing. And this was stuff getting published by really good writers. It was all surface. There was no subtext. So like the writers telling me exactly how the character feels instead of using sensory details to show me how the character feels, to show me the inner world of the character. Um, And I think if a writer is getting caught in just surface level storytelling, um, and I'd be happy to explain that um, if you think that's necessary. Um, if the writer is just focusing on surface level storytelling, I don't think they're truly understanding their characters. They're not understanding the themes that they're playing with. And, you know, we we, we might always come to a story with, oh, I'm going to have these themes in here. But there are always ones that arise that we don't realize are there. And somebody usually has to point them out for us. Um, but if you aren't thinking about subtext, if you aren't thinking about the inner world of your characters and their psychological nature, then also those, you know, shocking twists are going to feel very hollow. Yeah. It, it's just like your your characters are at the service of the plot and they're just chess pieces being moved around a board to get to the next plot point. Well, the other difficulty, I mean, I get this with uh, with my Bridget Sharp thrillers, is that they're written first person. So we are inside Bridget's head the entire time, you know, throughout those uh, chapters of the book. And so we are part of two thought processes. But what I try to do is, at least for the sort of, you know... Um, for the for the aware reader, shall we say, for the you know for the reader who notices, it's quite clear at times that she is self-deceptive. You know that mm. she will. I will tell you exactly what she's thinking, but the the perceptive reader—that's how I should phrase it—will probably notice that that's actually not necessarily true, <laughs> and, <laughs> and that what she thinks she's feeling is actually has you know other roots or other um, reasons for being. Well, and that's also very human. Yeah, We exactly, lie to ourselves yeah. all the time and not necessarily because there's something that we can't face or, or don't want to hear. Um, it's just because, you know, we don't know ourselves fully, truly. 
But she's also a very young character, yes. Yeah, so she doesn't know yeah. herself very well. I kind of rely on that a little. Yeah, I mean, there there are things we learn about ourselves years later. It's like, oh, no wonder I responded that way, or no wonder I used to think that way, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, the the unreliability of you know first person narrators narrators are a lot of fun sometimes. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned. Uh, editing and revision um and it sounds like then you're able to kind of separate yourself from yourself as editor from yourself as author when you come to revise so how do you actually go about when you know when you have a first draft written how do you go about tackling that revision process well um if i don't have like a really close deadline <laughs> and i have to get to it right away what i like to do is um put it away for a bit and I don't mean a really long time, like maybe a day, something like that. Um, because this is what this is why writers need editors anyway, is at some point your brain knows what's supposed to be there. So when you are evaluating your own work, your brain will sometimes read what isn't actually there. Yeah. So I like to distance myself from whatever I've written. So I'm away from it long enough that I can see errors. And when I say errors, I'm not just talking about typos or grammatical things. I'm also talking about, you know, this character wouldn't actually say something like that, or the tone is off here. And what I do is I print it out. I'm a very, I'm also very tactile. <laughs> so I'm audiovisual, but I also need to feel what I'm working on, which is, you know, when I'm writing out the outline stuff or notes, I like to start in a journal and actually feel what I'm working on. I will um, print it out. I will have the pages and I will just go through the pages like an editor. Um, and I will, you know, use like the, you know, classic editing marks, but I will also write notes. Um, if I don't like the way I've worded something, I will cross it out and reword it right on the page. And I find that. After I have written something, it is a lot easier to rewrite sentences or phrases than when I'm in the process of writing it. Um, because like I was saying, sometimes I will get to a sentence and I don't know exactly how to word it. I know it should be there, um, but it's not coming to me right away. And that's why I'll have those brackets there. And so a lot of times I will leave some of the brackets. Um, sometimes when I'm finishing up a draft, I will go through and replace the brackets because now I know what I want to be there. Um, but sometimes I'll just leave those brackets there because I still don't know it should be there. Um, and I'll go through the whole thing and edit it that way, um, just page by page. And the other thing that I have found with the brackets, it's like, oh, I need to add something here, but I don't know it should be here yet. I find I don't need it. I can just take it out completely. It's not necessary. Don't you often find, actually, that's something that... I find fairly often is I think, oh, I need to come up with something here, but I'm not sure what it is. And so, yeah, as you say, you kind of leave a note to yourself to come back and then you realize, oh, actually, no, I don't need it at all. And right. what you've, you've fallen into the trap of thinking you need to explain every little thing when in fact you don't. And it's, it's overkill. And the nice thing about having like um, a scenes to come document is that I will have lots and lots and lots of material. And, and like the, the movie metaphor is, is really apt because, you know, scenes get left on the cutting room floor. Yep. Yep. Same thing. <laughs> uh, so, or, you know, like I'll have versions of a scene and I can't decide, you know, at the time which version works better. So I might have two or three different scenes. And another fun thing that I found, because like when I was working on a particular ma manga series, I've put it to a side for a while. I actually started writing out the scenes in a notebook before I realized, oh, you could actually put this in a word processor and it would be a lot easier. I found that after I had, you know, 400 something pages of this document, this word document, I went back to my notebook and I had similar versions of scenes in the notebook I had forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> you know, like, like I was saying, like you'll, you'll memorize something, it'll kind of become a part of you so you don't forget it. And, you know, it was, it was apparently important enough that 
I would put it down like three or four different times, even though I would do different versions of it and I could pick and choose from what I liked better. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, it's not not something that you, uh, not scenes that you don't realize you've done necessarily, but there's a similar thing in uh, screenwriting. It's really common to rewrite alternate versions of scenes you know, at the behest of a producer or something, uh, you know, for whatever reason, where the end result is the same. You know, ultimately, the position, as it were, of everybody at the end of the scene is is the same in every version. But how mm-hmm. you get through that scene to get to reach that destination can be wildly different. I've done this myself. I'm thinking of uh, one screenplay I wrote. Uh, I, I can't go into detail, but it was like, there was a big scene at the start, big scene involving all of the characters, big ensemble scene, like eight pages long, you know, really quite lengthy. And there are three versions of that scene, (laughs) you know, (laughs) on my hard drive and they all end in exactly the same place, but they all go through wildly different routes to get there. Um, So yeah, it is fascinating sometimes the kind of the the roads not traveled that we have you know tucked away as you say like lost on the cutting room floor yeah it is also and one of my mantras you you touched on it is that it is easier to rewrite anything even the worst writing in the world than it is to write it the first time you know to the to face the blank page yeah i i i think so um you know a friend of mine was saying she, revisions are so difficult for her um, and I'm like, it's, it's, it's the easiest part of the process. I kind of can't wait to finish so I can revise it. Um, part of it because I know it's going to be easy, but also because I know it's, it's going to be a lot better yeah. once it goes through the revision. So. Exactly. I've had uh, guests on the show who absolutely hate, hate the revision process. And yeah, I'm the same as you. I'm like, but all you're doing is making it better. <laughs> right. It's, you know, that's fun. It'll be so much better when you're done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh dear. All right, let let's start to wrap this up then. So tell me, um when you when you when you sit down at the computer and you start to write for the day, what parts do you really enjoy writing? What do you look forward to doing? Oh wow, that's a I haven't really thought about that before. Um I guess it's it's not so much in I'm, I'm not thinking structurally here, but maybe it's a part of the story that has really energized me. Um, and I've really enjoyed visualizing it and, you know, working it out in my head and the way that the character, you know, whether it's, you know, between two characters who are having a really intense conversation or it's really action oriented and something crazy happens. It's something that really, really gets me excited. It's it's almost like I can feel like my body responding to how excited I am mm. and I can't wait to write it and get it down. Um, because if I'm having that much fun with it, I am hoping that the audience has that much fun with it as well. And it's like, I want to get it down because the, the, the faster I get it down, the faster I'm getting that thing finished and I can get it out there in the world. Um, so I, I guess I, I would think about it in that way. Um, because it's not so much to me, like, I I like writing beginnings the best or I I like writing, you know, the endings the best. It's more about how something makes me feel and how much how much in how enjoyable or how entertaining it was for me to discover it, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well then by contrast, what parts do you dread coming to write? Um so usually endings are hard especially if you are ending like, I mean, well, endings are hard in general, but if you're ending a really long story, you don't want to flub that thing (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, the audience has been with you a really long way. You don't want a disappointing ending and also titles. Titles can be very, very hard. A lot of times I'll just have a title pop in my head, right? And titles can be very easy or very hard for me. Um, And I like titles to have, Again, I don't like them to just be surface level. I like for titles to give um, the audience something to think about. Maybe it's thematic. Maybe it's foreshadowing. Maybe it's, you know, telling them something about a particular character. But, you know, for some stories, titles can be really, really difficult. My dissertation title actually, I hated the title I came up for it. And, you know, I had to come up with something. 
And, you know, in the months, you know, that I was writing it and then, you know, going through the process of, you know, giving it to the committee and having to defend it, I couldn't figure out a decent title for it. And it was only like three or four years later where I was working on revising it that I got a great title for it. And I'm like, why couldn't I have had this then? You know, it was a great (laughs) evocative title. Uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what is? Tell me something that you've read, watched, played recently where the writing really impressed you, and why? Oh, let's see. Um, so I'm 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 nitpicky. I'm I'm trying to think back to stuff that I've I've been watching. So it it it, it took me a while to kind of figure out what I wanted to answer here because, um, because I'm analytical, you know, I'll pick things apart and I'll, I'll, I'll find issues with things. Um, so Lovecraft country just finished. Um, and there are a lot of brilliant things I found about it. There, there are some issues with it too. Like the, it, it can be structurally off. There are issues with the pacing because I really think that every episode could be like a three episode story arc. Um, and it feels a lot of times like more of an anthology series instead of, you know, episodes that flow one into the next. Although, you know, there'll be things that happen in earlier episodes that are built upon in later ones. Um, and also, and I think this is really important to say the, the, the biggest problem with the series. And I mentioned earlier that I am a diversity consultant consultant, and this is, um, a a bit of a content warning for some people. So I I do want to make sure that I prepare people. Um, there is an intersex, um, two spirit character who is only in one episode, um, and is violently murdered by one of the main characters. And what the showrunners wanted to show was that the history of violence has not just been done to people of color, but it has also perpetuated itself when people of color commit acts of violence against each other. The problem is that there's been awful violence done you know, to queer people, um, and especially trans people, um, intersex people. And there is a history of that in storytelling. And it's, it was done in such a graphic way and without an understanding of that history and without seemingly any reason. And, you know, the, the showrunner did later apologize and came to understand that that was a misstep. But that is why it is so, so, so extremely important to have diversity in a writing room. And that means when you've got people of color in a writing room, people of color make mistakes as well. I am saying that as a person of color, um, you need that diversity of voices. You know, you need queer people in a writing room. You know, um, you need people who have had, you know, very different experiences than your own um, because you are going to have blind spots, Uh, not just because you haven't experienced them, but you are going to have blind spots in the history of the way certain groups have been portrayed in stories. And, you know, if, if, if you are from a marginalized group and you understand how traumatizing it can be when you see yourself portrayed, um, in an awful way, you know, there are other marginalized groups who have also been portrayed in awful ways that you may not know about. Um, so even if you are from a marginalized group and, you know, if you're writing and, and putting uh, characters into your stories that are not from the same marginalized group that you are, make sure that you have a sensitivity reader or a diversity consultant uh, to look at your work. It is extremely important. Oh, and also pay them. Um, yes. <laughs> and if you can't pay them, uh, take them to dinner or something once the pandemic is over. Okay. So that's <laughs> those are the problems that I have with Lovecraft Country. Now, let me talk about the stuff that I absolutely loved. So 
the monsters, there are monsters in Lovecraft Country, more of their monsters. And, you know, they're Lovecraftian entities. But the true monster of the story is racism and racist people. And there is always this underlying terror of what racism and racists are going to do to the characters, the main characters next, and how are they going to get out of it? And that's just brilliant because that is something that, you know, it takes place in the 1950s, but that is something that Black people live with today. And it's very real. That that first episode is just a hold-your-breath experience for, like, the last half an hour. Um, and it, it's the acting is amazing in that episode. Um, you know, the tension is amazing. There's a little bit of history thrown in there, too, about how they figure out that they're in trouble. Um, but, like, the the true terror is just done so wonderfully. And... The other thing that I love is that it is unrelentingly black. And what I mean by that is that they don't shy away from issues that black people face. Um, it's, it's, they're telling stories that, you know, other groups of people may feel a little bit squeamish about. Um, and I know that as a writer, I have had editors who have been squeamish about me telling certain stories. Um, and so I think it's very important that they were able to tell stories in the ways that they wanted to tell them and address certain issues in the ways that they wanted to do so. The other really cool, th the cool things that they did, they introduced historical figures, like real historical figures, either as characters or they would have cameos um, or they would influence um, certain plot points. And they, they used real uh, photographs. Um, they used um, paintings and art to inform their set design and costuming. And um, there are a couple of brilliant bloggers. Um, they, uh, they, they blogged Lovecraft Country. Their name is Tom and Lorenzo, who looked at that first episode and the costume design. And they pointed out that every single character, even the background characters, you could tell exactly who they were and what their lives were like just by what they were wearing. Mm. And that's really great storytelling. And so like even the background characters were given lives of their own, even if you never heard them speak. Um, and I know if, if, if you do watch the show or maybe even if you don't, um, I would highly recommend listening to Lovecraft country radio, which is a, a, companion podcast for the series that HBO produced, which is hosted by a TV critic. And one of the writers from the writing room um, is on every um, episode talking with the TV critic. And you could tell that they put a lot of thought into everything that they did. Like it, it, when they were talking through like really difficult subject matter they they thought through it at different angles and like even i told you like that that major major error that they made with that one character um she even talks about that in the thought process of that um and so if you enjoy podcasts like this where we're talking <laughs> about their processes um you know that also gets into like collaboration and you know decision making on that level and it also introduces like philosophy and history um, and how that also informed what they did and didn't want to do. And, you know, she's also very thoughtful about messages that they wanted to make sure that they didn't give the audience. Um, so that's why I would say Lovecraft Country. That absolutely sounds, the podcast, I mean, sounds right up my alley. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think you would love the podcast. <laughs> All right. So Toya, where can people find you online? On Twitter, I am at Toya K. Fenley, although I have to warn you that I mostly uh, post dog content with some other animals, and occasionally you will get a few thoughts of my own. <laughs> um, I also have a personal website, ToyaKFenley.com, which has a long defunct blog. Um, again, maybe if I <laughs> feel like people will actually read stuff I write there, I will start writing blog posts again. And for my professional side, I am at schnoodlemedia.com. That is S-C as in Charles, H-N-O-O-D-L-E, media.com. 
<laughs> Fantastic. And what work of yours would you recommend that listeners check out if they haven't uh, read or played or seen anything by you before? Well, uh, I, I guess the easiest things that you can get your hands on are the two books I've done on games. Um, the first is called The Game Narrative Toolbox, which I co-authored with Anne LeMay, Tobias Hosner, and Jennifer Hepler. And um, if you are working on your own games or you're trying to build your portfolio, I would highly recommend it because every chapter has uh, exercises with it. So you could literally end up with a portfolio by the end of that book. Um, I also um, edited and contributed several chapters to the only book. And as, as far as I know, you know, one of the only texts that looks at um, social games and mobile games at all Narrative Tactics for Mobile and Social Games, Pocket-Sized Storytelling. Rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yes, it absolutely does. Um, and also, I, I have several uh, short stories in anthologies. I have one in Wastelands 2. Um, so there is an anthology called uh, Text UR or Text Er. Um, where I have a novelette in there called uh, The Avatar of Background Noise. Fun fact, the dissertation that I wrote was a novel told in four novellas. And so that beginning uh, novella, I condensed and um, got it published in text -er. And so <laughs> The Avatar of Background Noise is the name of that novelette. And it is also now the name of that dissertation, because <laughs> that is the good title that I finally figured out several years after I wrote the dissertation. <laughs> Everything comes back around in the end. Absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. Toya, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing. And a special thanks to our Patreon supporters who help keep the show going. If you want to join them and become a patron to get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, take part in Q&A episodes and more, go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing and make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter. And that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.